0: You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place. Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biskubic and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book, American Ramble. Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Trump Administration Interior Secretary David Bernhardt discusses his book, You Report to Me, Accountability for the Failing Administrative State. He argues that the administrative state has amassed unaccountable power over the last 20 years. He's interviewed by American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow Adam White.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: David, welcome to Afterwards on Book TV. Your book is titled, You Report to Me, where did that title come from? Who was reporting to who?
2: Well, that book is um, uh, really titled based on um, a conversation I had with President Trump mm-hmm. uh, right as I was um, becoming um, acting uh, Secretary of the Interior. And um, I sat down with the President and had a discussion about potentially taking this role after serving as deputy secretary. And in our discussion, um, we got to the end of the discussion and I said to him, who do I report to? And he said, you report to me, which was, um, a very different, um, perspective than I expected. I expected to be told I reported to the chief of staff or someone else. And so I walked out of there, out of, out of the Oval Office with that, um, uh, crystallized in my memory and it turned out that it was actually true mm-hmm. that as I worked uh, with the president, uh, what I found is that I called him, um, discussed issues with him, and he made um, you know the inputs that he wanted to make, and it turned into a um, working relationship that was very, very efficient and much different than the experiences I had experienced in the Bush administration. So I used that title But as you read the book, for those that do read the book, uh, it actually has a broader meaning. And uh, my view is that all of the individuals in government, whether they're in the civil service, or uh, elected officials, or in in the judiciary, ultimately, um, all of them, uh, through their uh, oath uh, of office, uh, report to the American people, and we should remember that.
1: Now we'll talk a lot in this conversation about the, the agency's relationship to the president, the leader of the agency's relationship to the bureaucracy. And we'll talk about Congress and the courts. But maybe we should talk first about the Interior Department. Uh, it's, a, it's a large organization. It does a lot of things. A lot of people are there. But my guess is it's not necessarily the most famous of the cabinet departments, no offense. Uh, it's one that I know well from my old career in energy law. But for those who don't study Interior quite so closely, could you just talk about uh, what it does? Absolutely.
2: Um, First off, it's
1: an
2: important agency with a very important mission. Uh, The Department of the Interior manages approximately one in every five acres of land in the United States um, through its administrative jurisdiction that's been conferred to it by Congress, Mm -hmm. as well as um, activities that take place on the uh, Outer Continental Shelf. And so it has a milieu of responsibilities uh, related to those lands uh, depending on the direction the Congress has provided. For example, some of these areas Congress has designated to be national parks in others, uh, fish and wildlife refuges. Um, other lands are designated um, multiple-use lands um, administered by the Bureau of Land Management. The Department of the Interior also manages uh, water responsibilities in the West uh, through what is called the Bureau of Reclamation Mm -hmm. and um, play a very important role in delivering water for agriculture and municipal and industrial uses uh, to a lot of people in the West. And then there's scientific responsibilities, such as the U.S. Geological Survey. Now, what's really interesting about the department is it's a very old agency. Mm-hmm. It was actually established in 1849, um, and it w- when it was established, it was um, the outcome of other cabinet departments hoping to get rid of certain activities uh, that they had Mm -hmm. within their jurisdiction. So the Department of Treasury was able to um, get out of the work associated with the General uh, Land Office, which was largely in charge of uh, transferring uh, lands uh, as a a means of creating revenue for the federal government. Mm -hmm. Uh, The War Department um, transferred the responsibilities associated with Uh, American Indians uh, to the Department of the Interior. The um, veterans' pensions and uh, benefits were part of the Department of the Interior, and even the Patent Office was initially a part of the uh, Department of the Interior. And so um, it was, um, even back in the 1840s and 50s, it was this organization that was very complex based on a lot of stuff that other departments uh, didn't want to focus on.
1: When you come to Washington, often you see all these agencies and you kind of feel like they've been here forever. But, but some of them are very new, some of them are very old. And your story about the history of Interior reminds me of just 20 years ago when the government created the Department of Homeland Security and had to bring together so many different component parts, some no, new, some old. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to actually work out how all these things will row in the same direction. And I, and I gather that even for an agency that's now uh, almost, what, almost 200 years old, Sometimes it is still difficult to, to row everything in the same direction. So what you have
2: at an agency like Interior is specific, uh, in, within that department, specific agencies mm-hmm. have very different statutory missions, yeah. And so um, in the role of Deputy Secretary or Solicitor or even Secretary, you're often harmonizing um, it, the mandates yeah. of these different agencies in a way that works uh, for your overall responsibilities. And so historically that can have uh, tension, that can have um, a lot of public attention, and, um, and you learn uh, through that process um, how to try and manage those responsibilities in a way that's consistent with the law, consistent with the facts, and then obviously to the extent that it's appropriate, consistent with the policy direction that the president has.
1: Now, even before you became deputy secretary, then secretary, interior is an agency that you knew pretty well. You'd had a a long career there, right? That's correct.
2: I spent eight years as a political appointee, uh, first as a very junior appointee, working my way up um, in the Bush administration for eight years. I ultimately served as a solicitor of the department, Mm -hmm. which is um, their chief legal officer. at the end of the Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration, and then, of course, returned to serve as deputy secretary uh, in the uh,
1: Trump administration. Now, back to uh, the the theme of the book, You Report to Me, how would you describe the relationship between a president and his cabinet secretaries?
2: Well, I think it really is a relationship that is largely dependent on um, the views of the relationship the president actually wants to have. I mean, if you look at the Constitution, you know, there's there's not a lot of direction on um, the job description of, of uh, the relationship between the secretary and the president. You know, the president appoints you. Um, you have to be confirmed uh, by the United States Senate. And then um, the Constitution basically says the president can ask you for um, a written report, right? Right. Um, and... It, and ultimately, um, the responsibilities associated with that job um, are laid out in law, but you have to have a relationship with the president and, and what he wants. And, for example, when I sit down with the president to talk about uh, um, potentially um, serving as secretary, one of the questions I had for him is what did he uh, want um, in the job of secretary? Because depending on, you know, his um, Interests, um, the role may be something that I was not the optimal candidate for. So we we talked about that, and um, and ultimately the the president um, decides uh, how that relationship is going to work, what the involvement um, is that he wants with the secretary, and um, and it's a very personal choice in my opinion.
1: Now, interior is a big place, but the White House is a big place too. The president has. Not just his his core staff and advisors. There's the entire domestic policy council, the national economic council, national security council, OIRA, all of that. And so, when President Trump says you report to him, I, I mean, I understand that in the sense that you're you're his appointee and you'll have a a one-on-one relationship in a lot of your work. But you're still surely working a lot with the broader team of the White House, and, and at its best, that larger structure helps the policy-making process. So how did you navigate that, reporting to the president, but working with the broader team?
2: Well, I, that, first off, you're absolutely right that there's an entire team. And you know my perspective on the president's direction um, was as follows. Um, you're working with everybody collaboratively because you are a team. Mm-hmm. and um, And you want to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And you're part of um, uh, an effort where the White House is raising issues. Potentially, you're giving them uh, solutions or raising issues to them to ensure that they are aware of, of activities. The president set very clear goals for me. He said, here are your goals. Um, but um, what that uh, statement meant to me was that ultimately, I had the ability to talk directly to the president when I needed to or wanted to. And that to me was a difference than the experience that I'd seen uh, in the in the Bush administration. At times in the in the Bush administration, I witnessed it taking literally months for a secretary to be able to raise an issue directly to the president while working through that White House process Mm -hmm. Uh, with President Trump. Um, you could move forward and get that call back very, very quickly. And that allowed you to resolve issues and move forward at a pace that really was dramatically different than my experience in the prior administration. And that was important. Um, the, to, to me, it was at least important, and I think it would be important to any manager. Um, what you want as a, as a manager, I think, of any role is, you know, you want clear direction. You want a degree of consistency in that direction. And um, and when you need uh, feedback or a response, you want that uh, quickly. And you want to know that the superior has your back uh, to a certain extent. I think everybody that works for anyone wants those types of things. And as I lay out in the book, You Report to Me, um, I felt that I had that with the president. What's an example of that? Well, a, a great example would be um, one of the first actions uh, that I took, um, I came in as an acting secretary. Uh, it was in the middle of a government shutdown and I explained this in the book and I made a decision to begin to uh, utilize some money for recreational that was uh, that was from recreational fees to address some issues uh, at the national parks and actually put um, some of our folks that were in facilities and maintenance uh, who were really hurting back to work right away during the shutdown. And in doing that, I knew that it would be controversial. I was confident it was legal, but I um, raised the issue uh, with the White House and directly with the President, explained to him what I was going to do, and he said to me, hey, um, three things essentially. You're doing this now, even though it's been a while with the shutdown, maybe you should have thought about doing it sooner, which I thought was a completely legitimate and responsible issue. Secondly, you're the new guy. And um, because you're the new guy, maybe you ought to say that I directed you to do this, which I found incredibly interesting given that I had told him it would be a controversial decision, that he would have my back. Mm -hmm. And then third, and this was really important to me, he said, hey, when you have something that you think is right and you need to do it, just do it and let me know and run your department the way you need to. And that was very enabling. And to have that direction from from the president of the United States to move forward on his policy vision, I thought was an incredible uh, act of management.
1: Now, when you're not dealing with the president of the White House, you're dealing with the broader interior team. And that's one of the core messages of the book, the difficulty of leading a large cabinet ag- cabinet level agency with many statutory responsibilities and a huge team of civil servants and, and others uh, who don't necessarily agree with a given president's particular agenda. Uh, how would you describe the, the relationship between the cabinet's, the, the, the agency's leader, and the, the civil servants?
2: Well, uh, first off, it starts with uh, the role of a respective secretary. And in the, in the case of the Secretary of the Interior, uh, Congress has uh, clarified that the Secretary of the Interior supervises all functions of the Department of the Interior, and then it lists those uh, functions. And um, what's interesting about that, I've always thought, is the word supervise. Mm-hmm. Um, supervise, to me, is a, is a word that conveys uh, both um, an active sense, like you need to be on top of things, and an element of accountability, and then the word all added to that means you're responsible for everything that's occurring in that department, which is significant. Mm -hmm. Um, The role, I was very lucky when I first came to Interior during the Bush administration. Um, I ended up working in a very small office, and um, the great thing about that particular office was that the folks in that office believed it was their mission. The career folks in that office believed it was their mission to help the secretary shine no matter who the secretary was. And so um, that was uh, getting an experience to work collaboratively with um, career staff taught me a couple things. Mm-hmm. First off, it taught me um, that I could overperform if I worked with them, if they collaborated with me, if I was able to learn from their expertise and then use that to move the ball forward. In 2016, after the election, what we saw in the, in, in, in the press in particular was a lot of media um, highlighting efforts to um, suggest that uh, folks in the civil service should be resistant to the new president. Mm -hmm. And that was frankly encouraged in the media if you go back and look at Bloomberg stories or others. And I highlight some of those stories in the book. Mm -hmm. And that was very troubling to me because at the end of the day, when you sign up for the civil service and you take the, you take the same oath everyone takes uh, to, you know, well and faithfully execute the law, um, in doing that, in doing that, you um, buy into the system of whoever is the person um, that's elected you need to carry out um, the mission according to um, the direction that the American people have picked and so um, my first message as deputy secretary laid out um, you know my my view of the need for us to work together mm-hmm. and to highlight um, you know, the respective roles of um, the civil service on one hand and political appointees. Now, the book, uh, the book highlights a whole series of, of events from other agencies where um, you see a lack of collaboration at different times. And I also highlight some great points of collaboration.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> A real POS. You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: A president's and uh, a president's frustration with the bureaucracy is a, is a very old story in Washington. President Truman was, was frustrated with the bureaucracy. He, if I remember correctly, he joked that President Eisenhower would arrive thinking he's like a general where everything he does will immediately get saluted and he'll find out, in fact, things move a lot slower. Kennedy and his administration were frustrated with the bureaucracy. President Clinton, President Obama, they were often frustrated with military bureaucracy. Um, we often think about this as Republican presidents being frustrated by, by domestic policy civil servants, but this happens on both sides of the aisle. That said, there does seem to be a difference recently in the last few administrations, Uh, and like you said, at the outset of the Trump administration, where you had civil servants protesting around the arrival of their their new leadership. I remember uh, stories of the EPA bureaucracy protesting outside of the EPA building. That's right. uh, Even before uh, Secretary or Administrator Pruitt was, was appointed to the agency. What has changed in the last, so, say, 20 years? So I think a couple things, but,
2: um, and I, but I also think all of these things can be uh, overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that um, on one hand, it became uh, socially acceptable to engage in this activity. Um, the, the other hand, it is also a result, I believe, of a feeling of impunity that there will be no consequence for for um, acting in a manner that's unacceptable. And I think in some instances they actually believe that the activities are um, beyond appropriate. And I, I highlight in the book an example of um, uh, an individual who uh, is working with the White House on communications. And uh, she uh, devises a methodology where If the White House doesn't like what she's uh, written and gives her edits back, Mm -hmm. she will um, make the changes to the edits, um, but then reinsert her own um, language that wasn't approved Mm -hmm. back into the document uh, in other places and then send it forward as, quote, a workaround. And, you know, in any other um, line of work, that would be blatant, blatant insubordination Here, the person actually wrote a book highlighting her utilization of doing that. And so I think on one hand, it became acceptable. Now, why is that? Well, part of it, in my opinion, is that the leaders of these agencies themselves have allowed some of this to happen from the standpoint of not being clear that they are responsible for these documents. They're going to truth check them. They're going to edit them. They're going to... Um, own them, and in doing that, they're going to do the effort to be rigorous in their review. Yeah. And what I really found is if you are rigorous in your review and you, um, and you are willing to do the work, people will find a way to accommodate you and realize that you know, ultimately the buck does stop with you. And if you're willing to shoulder the burden mm-hmm. of the responsibility they are, they are typically willing uh, to work with you.
1: Now, a professional civil service, a, a nonpartisan civil service, is, is actually one of the great achievements of American history. That's right. Uh, in the, after the Civil War in the late 19th century, you had laws like the Pendleton Act that were enacted in order to get us away from a spoil system where each new newly elected president would come in and hand out jobs like political gifts. You'd have a professional civil service that would carry over from one administration to the next, for the sake of stability in government, for, for 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 expertise in government, and more. A moment ago, you, you mentioned the respective roles of the civil servants versus the political appointees. Maybe you could unpack that a little bit. What are the respective roles of the political appointees and the civil service?
2: Well, I think at the end of the day, um, just as I said, you know, the secretary... Is the supervisor of that agency, mm-hmm. whether people like it or not, whoever is appointed and confirmed is in charge. Um, the policy views of the president are um, on one hand a important component, but 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 equally important are the laws that you're tasked with them administering. Right. Those are ultimately your true responsibility. And then you have facts. And it's within the realm of Um, looking at the confines of the law, looking at the facts you have, and then the extent that there's policy discretion, that's the difference that an election should make. But ultimately, all of that responsibility rests with those uh, senior appointees, and then it's delegated down. And as it's delegated down, those responsibilities are really there for the civil servant to help the actual official, the principal, make the um, right decision or take the right action and help them and inform them they're there to be an aid mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of assistance and carrying out the responsibilities they're not there to be the policy director they're not there to be the um you know advocate for a cause they're there to faithfully carry out the law as it's as it has been conferred by Congress and envisioned by um, whoever's in charge subject to the policy discretion that exists. And to do that, um, to do that there are incredible uh, people. I you know early on in, in my tenure uh, in the Bush administration, I worked with someone who um, she, she basically had worked on the same issue mm-hmm. for, for many, many years through consecutive administrations. And every time a new, um, a different party came into power, um, they would change on that issue 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she had a document called an environmental, uh, review, um, uh, EIS, an environmental impact statement. And, um, and I was looking through it once and she had literally color coded it, the facts associated, uh, with the document for those facts that were the best arguments for one Mm -hmm. um, administration versus another to save her time every time um, somebody came back in and said, hey, we need help with this. And those are the people that can really do uh, help you make phenomenal progress for whomever is in charge. Conversely, if you have 1% of folks um, resisting, that's one thing. If you have 2%, that's another. If you have 10%, or 20 or 15 And my fear is, if we don't recognize the importance of holding people accountable to their responsibilities, that number could grow depending on whoever um, they happen to not like being elected. And we can't have that and have outcomes that are good for the American people.
1: Yeah. Now, let's set aside the sort of obvious case where a civil servant is making life difficult for the president because he's a Republican or because he's a Democrat. Just right. setting those aside. What about the cases where a civil servant thinks that the politically appointed leadership is just wrong on an issue, is 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 misinterpreting a statute, is misconstruing the facts? Uh, it's not even so much a disagreement about the policy discretion. They just think that the law or the facts are on the other side of the sure. decision. Now, of course, they could they could resign, but there must be some kind of dialogue or process there to absolutely
2: to is I mean first off, any employee can go to the you know the general counsel's office or the solicitor's office they can raise issues with their supervisor mm-hmm. uh, they can go to the inspector general. There are entire mechanisms and and if they think it's really inappropriate um, in terms of like a political activity, they can even go to the office of special counsel mm-hmm. so there's a whole host of remedies that you can take beyond um, resistance or bad behavior. And those remedies should be taken. Um, many times, um, you know, an employee may not necessarily know the law mm-hmm. or um, have a, a full assessment of the facts or have a perspective. And that dialogue is helpful. Other times, um, the political appointee may uh, be misinformed. And the importance of as a, the role of a political appointee in my opinion, is the ability to um, identify the law and identify the facts and be able to get the information you need to make an informed decision. And that really um, is maximized when you have collaboration back and forth by, um, with, with the career staff and you you often have it and um, and, and sometimes um, it's educational for both parties.
1: You recount a story in the book where there was a debate around ap- applying the Endangered Species Act uh, and the lawyers were in, were reading a statutory term, I think the term was indirect effects and they said here's what the law means and there were other experts in the agency or maybe outside of the agency advising the agency who were construing the term indirect effects much much more broadly so you had people in and around the agency who had a very broad sense of the agency's mission, and then you had lawyers within the agency who were who were focusing much more on the statutes. Is that I thought that was an interesting example? Is it a, is it a common occurrence in the agency in your experience? Sure. Oh, go ahead.
2: Well, particularly on issues related to science, mm-hmm. you can have you know there are legal and regulatory terms, and then you can have um, issues that people think are relevant yeah. and. Um, you know, we live in a society of law. And so at the end of the day, to have any certainty um, of our decision making, to have predictability in the law, yeah. the, what the, how the law defines something or how the regulation defines something is really important. And somebody can have a view on what a word might mean, like maybe the regulation should be a broader definition or a different definition. Well, that's legitimate, but the the issue that needs to be taken up is you should change your regulation or you should change the statute. You don't get to insert um, your view. Um, There's there's a number of examples in the book where um, there are terms that are commonly um, used have maybe a meaning that is somewhat different than in a particular legal or regulatory context. And the burden on the agency is to follow their uh, regulations or change them.
1: Maybe one of the most famous examples of this is the decades-long fight over the statutes that govern the the waters of the United States, the EPA and the Army Corps. And you'll have long scientific documents on how different bodies of water are connected or not connected. But first and foremost, there is the, the legal requirements that Congress has put in the law the agencies are governed by the laws, but when I talk with folks in civil service, and I mean good folks in civil service who really are doing the best job that they can, they often talk about the agency's mission. And it's my sense that agency personnel, first and foremost, have a broad sense of the agency's mission, and it's not always rooted immediately in statutory text, I don't blame them, they're not the lawyers, but how can politically appointed leadership Really move the agency when the agency staff feels like uh, the the new policies are at odds with their kind of general sense of an agency's mission. I guess that probably requires a lot of trust between the new leaders and and the inc- the, the incumbent staff.
2: Well, I think um, first and foremost, it requires um, you have to be clear. Mm-hmm. You have to be direct in what you um, lay out, and then you have to be rigorous in insisting that that's the way you're doing it and it takes time to change an agency's culture uh, a lot of folks um, a lot of folks are passionate about their mission yeah. and that's fantastic like that makes things great yeah. but that passion has to be um, cabined yeah. by the reality of the law and that's what I try and highlight in the book is at the end of the day the Congress decides what the law is the executive branch is clarifies uh, or ac- acts through guidance on regulations and guidance activities. And then we have to apply that. And if we want a different system, the way to do it is go change the law. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. But that's a role of an uh, activist. It's not the role of the civil servant just simply deciding what the law
1: might be. Now, we've been talking at a very high level generality mostly, but the subtitle of your book is Accountability for the Failing Administrative State. Your bottom line in the book is that there are some very significant reforms that are needed, reforms to the civil service and more, in order to uh, bring about a new generation of of, of agency work that really does follow uh, each president's directions in in enforcing the statutes.
2: Absolutely. Um, I fundamentally believe, you know, when you look back at history, much of the um, environment that's created what I view as a is um, a lack of accountability really is from the 1960s forward. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that's when um, uh, a number of appeal mechanisms were put in place, and it's also the same time that the um, executive branch really began to expand the the scope of the administrative state in some ways. And so you have these things happening together, and all of this authority flows to um, the executive branch, the people at the highest levels with the responsibility are delegating that down without a lot of oversight. And my view is that what we need to do is, is improve our methodologies of accountability, um, minimize um, the opportunities for unneeded appeals, um, consider even um, moving to um, more of an at-will system These are all questions for Congress, not uh, for David Bernhardt or others. But to think about how do we improve the system so that we get better outcomes for the American people. I also believe that um, leaders of these agencies need to be better prepared. I think they need to understand the law of the agency they're going to. Mm -hmm. They need to understand the processes better. And I think that that preparation helps them move forward.
1: Now, we've been talking about presidents and agencies we have mentioned congress a few times congress has a bunch of different laws in play here there's the procedural laws about how agencies do their work the laws you just mentioned governing civil service and and, and accountability and then there's the substantive laws that the agencies are actually administering uh, you talk in your book about how broadly those statutes are, are, are written they leave immense discretion in the hands of of the agencies but a lot of the subjects that the Interior Department and others are actually administering. They're very complicated. They require a lot of judgments. How could Congress actually write laws that are, that are clear and specific but still enable the agency to, 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 to make judgments based on the facts?
2: Well, Congress has, could do a lot. Yeah. Um, Congress could decide whether they play a role in the issuance of new regulations. Mm-hmm. Congress could have to approve them. Uh, Congress could... Um, Ask You know, I I was always I found it interesting whenever I testified in Congress, no one said to me, are you accomplishing your mission? What is what are the goals of this program? You know, I I believe that every program should be looked at and and Congress should say, what are we trying to accomplish here? Mm -hmm. And are we? And if we're not, maybe we ought to think about um, doing this program differently or improving it. Um, the problem is oversight by Congress involves a lot of work mm-hmm. and involves a lot of effort, but they really should examine these programs instead of the program just simply being on autopilot year in, year out. The fights on the budget mm-hmm. are, are never about um, dramatically decreasing a program. What they're really about is how fast are we going to increase the program and and what does it mean uh, when we do. And, and those are questions that if, if you assume we have limited resources and you assume we want the best outcomes we can have and we're in the middle of a technolo- technological revolution, mm-hmm. you would think Congress would be saying, what is the purpose of this program? How can it be done more efficiently? Where can it be done? And, and in doing that, should we be restructuring the way the government works? At the end of the day, Interior is organized pretty much the same way it's been organized since the very beginning of time, which is one local field office a little ways away, uh, another uh, larger management office, a state office or regional office, and then headquarters. And that's the way it's been aligned since since, uh, Interior started.
1: Now, Congress has written these broad, broad laws, and you mentioned each president is going to have his own view of what the right policy is within that field of discretion. But what that means is that we have huge swings in policy from one administration to the next. The the story you told earlier about the civil servant with the color-coded environmental impact statement. uh, On one hand, I like that story. It's a a good example of a civil servant who's really trying to work with, with leaders from both political parties. On the other hand, it is a little horrifying to think that that civil servants have to think about the inevitable wild swings in policy from one administration to the next. I know each president comes to office wanting to put his own stamp on the policies, but what could an administration do to help ensure some stability from one administration to the next? So my view of that is that that really is the choice of Congress because, mm-hmm. for example,
2: there are some statutes. Um, let's take the, the determination of whether something is a, a, a listed species under the Endangered Species Act. Right. That's that act lists five specific criteria for that determination. Mm-hmm. Five, and uh, those five don't change under any circumstance, right? So um, y- whether it's uh, one uh, political party as secretary or the other, at the end of the day, the five are immutable. And the only thing that's the question is um, does the facts support a determination based on those five? Mm-hmm. And so Congress decides ultimately in these areas what scope of jurisdiction they want to give to the executive, and, and that scope may vary or it may be limited. And, um, and so my view is that really is the role of Congress to, to determine that, mm-hmm. and, then, um, and then it's the executive's job to implement it accordingly. What about the courts? Well, obviously the courts get to decide uh, whether or not, the um, executive in, in the in the case I just mentioned mm-hmm. you know looked at those five factors, um, applied the facts uh, to those five factors and made a reasonable decision based on the law on one hand and the facts
1: on the other and that's that's the decision in the last few years the Supreme Court has had a, has shown great interest in maybe recalibrating how parts of the administrative state work. the court has looked at cases involving agency independence or the independence of people within agencies, too. They've looked at the, the zone of discretion that agencies get. It's called the non-delegation doctrine, questions about maybe Congress delegated an unconstitutional amount of power to, to an agency. And courts, the Supreme Court's thought about what we call Chevron deference, which is not deference to the, the Chevron oil company, but, but deference to... It's named after a case involving Chevron, and it's a deference to the agency's interpretation of the laws and And you work through some of those doctrines and and you'd like to see the courts rethink some of these things, maybe a little less deference both to the agencies and a little less deference to Congress in in delegating so much power away
2: that's that's right in the in the book, what I talk about, and I think this is part of a phenomenon, um, Chevron basically allowed agencies to believe that they could push the limit on the interpretations of statutes. So Mm -hmm. to the extent that that they could find an ambiguity, they could um, drive that ambiguity maybe to a place that they would like to go as a matter of policy. And in doing that, I believe um, agencies became more and more aggressive, and the Congress or sorry, and the courts by deferring to them encourage that, and um, and you know the the courts have a view that like maybe the executive branch is the best place uh, for those issues to be worked out. Um, my my view personally is that stretching is um, is is not good overall for representative government, in that it is it is it is encouraged. So much that it's taking away both the role of Congress to a some extent, and the, is essentially the courts abdicating their role to an extent. And my my own view of that is a limiting principle would help the agencies be a little more thoughtful in the grounding of their of their uh, policies. And it's so much easier as a executive to want to find a solution that doesn't require having to go to the United States Congress and get it. And so there's a constant uh, nudging of, um, could, we, could we maybe just fit this a little farther? And then those are the cases that often create, um, create extraordinary situations. Yeah,
1: well, we're living in a, in a, in a, under a government now where it seems with each new administration the, the new administration is making a lot of new policies. Congress is sitting back, kind of sitting in judgment of it all. And a lot of decisions are being made sort of once a policy is enacted by district court judges who, who get lawsuits and who make hugely important decisions about policies going forward or not going forward. But it seems like everybody else is kind of doing somebody else's job here. Maybe, I guess, the courts could nudge uh, the political energy back to Congress but that's going to be that's going to require a huge judgment call by the Supreme Court itself right over whether to create a new non delegation doctrine
2: well and 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 how far are the courts are willing to go on that is a a question but i I think the last uh, term has indicated that they're at least going um, to 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 nudge things in in a, a little bit of a direction and that and I think that is important. it does put onus on the other branches right yeah and um and at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, it may be uh, discombobulating, it may create an, an element of uncertainty. But we have to move to a place where, here, here's my underlying concern and this is really in the book the American people have to feel and believe, fundamentally, that the government, writ large accountable to them and that it acts fairly and and not in an arbitrary way mm-hmm. and if if we don't make some changes I fear that we're going to move farther and farther away from the American people having that confidence and when I see folks um, actively resisting um, a president whoever they are uh, on whether whether I voted for that president or not. I say that simply cannot stand.
1: Yeah. Well, well, in the time we have left, let's talk about some of the, the specific examples of 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 things that you grappled with when you were leading Interior and and speaking of moving further and further away, one of the most controversial uh, decisions you made while you were the secretary was the decision to move the headquarters of a of a subcomponent of Interior, the Bureau, of, it was Bureau of Land Management. That's right. Move it out west to to, to Boulder Junction, Grand Junction. Why why move it out there? Why not just keep it here in Washington? So you know I um. My, my predecessor, Ryan Zinke,
2: um, before, really the, from the moment he was nominated, he began working on a reorganization plan. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it really was a, a very interesting effort to try and uh, reform uh, the Department of the Interior's uh, management regime. And one of the components from the very beginning was uh, to begin to think about moving um, the headquarters of agencies out west. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that, in some, for example, the Bureau of Reclamation within the department um, only has a few people here in Washington. Most of them are already out west. Um, other agencies have, have done that. Um, with the Bureau of Land Management, when, when I looked at the situation, we have folks in state offices um, that really could, um, you know, we could deploy our assets to the states. We could set up a um, a, a headquarters in the West. And most of the Bureau of Land Management lands and activities are in the West. Mm -hmm. And um, my view was that you could keep the folks you needed in D.C., the people that deal with certain things that need to be here, but that you could uh, put them out there and, um, and that the perspective that they would have would be Um, number one different in that um, they would be closer to the issues that they uh, work on but there was also a a factor that people didn't um, really appreciate publicly and that was this, that for many years interior struggled to get their best people at the Bureau of Land Management to come to Washington D.C. to work and why would that be? Well, um, the cost of housing is dramatically different. Yeah. The, the commute time is dramatically different. And some of our best managers in the West really love their Western lifestyle. Yeah. And so the ability to um, recruit the best and the brightest to serve in these important roles I thought was a very, um, a very positive thing. And so we went through a process of um, reorganizing uh, and sent, sent um, uh, the facilities in, in a different direction and now, today, with um, the technology associated with Zoom and all of these other similar applications, I have a hard time um, uh, believing that there is not a benefit um, to um, moving a substantial number of these uh, positions to different parts of the country. Um, I can assure you that there is uh, certainly a uh, impact. Um, if you are making a decision that affects a community and you have seen that community, you've, been, you've uh, interacted with that community, that has a difference in the way you approach a problem than if you don't.
1: I have to admit, I've gone back and forth on this issue over the years. You point out all the reasons why it would be good for agencies to be closer to the communities and the, and the places that they're really affecting on the other hand, I wonder if moving these agencies or parts of them out to distant places—move USDA to Iowa, move Department of Transportation to Detroit, uh, you know, move, move uh, uh, Housing and Urban Development to a, to a, a major U.S. city outside of Washington. Um, that might actually make it more difficult, right, for the president and, and, his, and the politically accountable leaders to really supervise and, and manage people in these distant places. I mean, maybe there's some wisdom in the founders putting in the Constitution that we'd have uh, this 10-mile-square this district that would, have, that would be the seat of government, wouldn't necessarily have everything, um, but, but focusing as much as possible in one place where it would all work together.
2: Well, there's certainly uh, an argument for that. Yeah. And, um, you know, my, my view on that would be that we have um, uh, y- your position yeah. is likely to prevail over time. I don't think we're likely to see a dramatic um, elimination of the government in uh, federal government in Washington, D.C. But at the same time, I would say um, that when you look at limited resources, um, you have to ask yourself, how do you optimize those resources to serve the people, and having a bunch of people here may or may not optimally utilize that resource versus putting them in offices that have functions my My view is maybe you don 't need a headquarters yeah. of um, you know fifteen hundred people wherever mm-hmm. it is maybe the or thousands of people uh, maybe those are are Activities that would better be restructured um, some other way, mm-hmm. for example um, When a document comes in uh, from the Bureau of Land Management to DC um, To be reviewed when I when I got to interior um, 30 or 40 people would review that document mm-hmm. before it came to the desk of the Secretary of the interior to, to be sent to the federal register yeah. and you know my my question uh, is are all of those positions really critical or could we put those positions in uh, places, in field offices that really need the support? So I think that's really the question when you get down to the um, analysis is how do you optimize productivity of the organization in a way that's effective and do our leaders really need to be here? And my view of that with the BLM director was absolutely not. I could interact and lead him and his deputies um, just as easily with him located in Grand Junction as I could him having an office at 1849 C Street, and um, I could talk to him just as often.
1: Yeah, and I think surely that's the right answer in the end is that moving some jobs out of Washington would achieve everything that you described, but also it might help people in in far-flung American cities and towns to feel more connected. Part of the government. Part of the government, that's right. We've talked a lot about documents and the, the production and review of documents in, in, in government. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lawyer. I, I, I know sort of the legal process around administration very well. It seems to me that we've created a system that's very good at producing documents and, and analysis, but not necessarily very good at actually administering and executing laws in ways that make real changes uh, in day-to-day life. Every new administration announces new policies, there's executive orders and memos, and then rulemakings and environmental impact statements and on and on and on. But that's not the sum total of administration. At the end of the day, the job of administration is actually to to change, uh, to to carry out that process in a way that makes change in in day-to-day life. How do we get out of this trap where we're producing documents over and over again, but not actually implementing them. You can't really build anything in America anymore. We can, other than stacks and stacks of environmental impact statements. And that's just one example. How do we move administration from a process to actual outcomes?
2: Well, that, you know, that's a great question. And uh, one of the interesting things about working with President Trump is he was an outcome person. Like mm-hmm. he didn't want to hear a process, right? He wanted what it w- Now, that's w- not w- always, w- that's, w- that's w- not always the best thing. May, yeah. it, it may not be. But at the end of the day, the government is here to serve the people mm-hmm. and deliver the outcomes that the American people need. Yeah. And to do that um, effectively, um, you have to look at the processes you have in place and say, how can you make them better? And you know, you look at um, the uh, permitting process. Mm-hmm. There's lots of ideas out there of how to improve that process. Um, When I was the secretary uh, and even the deputy secretary and interior, you know, we sat down and said, "Okay, what can we do administratively to improve this process in a way that makes it um, meet the the goals of the act, Mm -hmm. which fundamentally were to uh, under NEPA, which was to ensure that there is a public participation process and that the decision maker is informed of um, alternatives to the proposed action and the varied environmental consequences. And we took a massive, um, slow process and consolidated it mm-hmm. into a series of uh, calls and briefings of face-to-face communication. Yeah. And on, on just recently, I received a, an email from a, a, a career civil servant that was explaining to me his recollection of meeting with me um, to discuss an environmental Uh, document that we streamlined, where I basically said, hey, on page uh, 230, you said X, and I'm not sure um, where you got that from. Mm -hmm. And his reaction was, oh my God, uh, what in the heck did we say on page 230? Because um, he was surprised that people had actually read the document. And we have set up processes that now are more about the process than the informing of um, the decision maker and moving forward. And ultimately, Congress is going to have to grapple with the best way forward with some of these things. And they're trying to, uh, but when it takes years to develop a plan for something, years to uh, litigate it, it really begins to freeze what we can do as a country.
1: Yeah, it seems one of the greatest challenges we face right now is that the the unsteadiness of, of administration from one administration to the next, the changes, And also, just the uncertainty. If you have a huge capital-intensive project, uh, a huge energy project, now the the new green energy projects are running into this. They have a a planning horizon of a decade or more, uh, and an investment horizon beyond that. If they actually want to do that, they need some stability. And what we're seeing is is uncertainty, and that will deter investment and innovation. How do we solve this?
2: Well, ultimately, the rules have to change on some of these. The reality, you're. The problem you identified is clear, yeah. and investors realize that, right? Or and or, or operators, or even other government agencies. And so, what do they do? They they either um, try and get through the process, or they just simply walk away. And our challenge, particularly in a time where uh, the public and many governments are expecting major infrastructure change is that something has to improve. My own view of this is that, um, is that the reality today in our society is that virtually every decision is really meaningfully um, thought through in terms of the potential environmental impacts. And, um, and that is an important consideration. Mm-hmm. But we also have to factor in the social benefits of projects and, um, and, and, and make decisions collectively about do we want to move forward with these items in a responsible time frame uh, because we are wrapped up in red tape, literally. Yeah.
1: Well, Again, the book is titled You Report to Me, Accountability for the Failing Administrative State, and the author is David Bernhardt former Secretary of the Interior. David, thanks for joining us on BookTV's Afterwards. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.